in this uh, second talk. So mm -hmm. now we tackle another topic which is uh, very much connected with the one we spoke about this morning. For those who just came later, this morning I spoke about the, uh, the kinship of Christ, Christ as the king. Why is he a king? Now we follow up to that uh, theme by speaking about the kingdom. If Christ is a king, as we said, and the scriptures say that, so he has a kingdom. Uh, before entering this uh, topic, Christ and his kingdom, let us emphasize once again that the kinship of Christ is universal. This was the outcome of today, this morning's talk. Christ has a kingdom, Christ's kinship is uh, cosmic, embraces everything and everyone. The power given to him because of his redemption, for giving up his blood, is between, is uh, included between heaven and earth. All power has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is a way the Holy Gospel is telling us that Jesus has a universal power because he redeemed all mankind, all men and women. In order to uh, deepen once again this, uh, this quality, universality of Christ's kinship, we have also to make reference to uh, a primacy of our Lord over all things. This is more a Pauline way of putting it. Saint Paul, in some of his letters, tells us that uh, Christ holds a primacy. What does it mean? For example, Saint Paul writes to the Colossians. Colossians 1.16, it's a magnificent hymn, Christological hymn. St. Paul, uh, to the Colossians, says, For in him, in Christ, were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominations or principalities or powers. All things were created by him and in him. So, this is St. Paul. In Christ, all things were created. And uh, look at this. All things were created by him and in him. Or we could also say in view of him. What does it mean? All things were created by Christ because Christ is God. Christ is making all things out of nothing. But why did everything, uh, God made everything in, uh, in him? Or also, as St. Paul says, in view of him. This is now a reference to his true human nature. By him, highlights Jesus' divinity, Jesus' making Everything because it's God. In view of him, in him, highlights the fact that everything was made because of him. Because of who? Christ as true man. True God and true man. So, the most perfect creation is Christ. His human nature, right? That he took from Our Lady. And in view of this perfect creation, all things created were made. So Christ is the efficient cause, making, and the final cause. Everything has to go towards him. The very goal of all creation is again Christ. Christ is the beginning and the end. That's why everything, 
things visible and invisible were made by him and in him. Everything is, uh, is held by Christ. Uh, we have another passage always in St. Paul's, uh, in one of his uh, epistles to the Ephesians 1.22, where we read that God the Father has subjected all things under his feet and has made him head over all the church. Look at this text. Now the link is between creation and salvation. Creation and the church. So everything has been made by him, in him. Everything has been subjected to him. All things have been put under, under his feet. And God the Father made the Son head of all the church. So in these all things, St. Paul includes what? Thrones, dominions, dominations, principalities, powers, sovereignties, angels, men, things visible and invisible, the whole matter up until the last atom. Do you believe that? All matter is subject to Christ. Yes? Christ is the reason for everything to be. Not only those things visible, but also invisible. And the invisible things in St. Paul's teaching are the angels, principally. Christ is the head of everything. The angels and uh, humankind, uh, things and uh, the whole matter, Everything. So this all already gives us the right interpretation of the fact that Christ is above everything. We can never uh, put one against the other faith and science. No point. They are not fighting, conflicting. Because if there is something, if there is a law of nature, that law has to obey to a higher law. That law was put there by the Creator. And that law has to obey, eventually, Christ. So there is no conflict between faith and reason, faith and science. The very reason uniting these two uh, dimensions is Christ. So his kinship is this way to bring all things together. And we see now that uh, this uh, final way to bring all things together, to reconcile all things, visible and invisible, is his realm. Visible realm, which is his kingdom, and this kingdom begins and develops with the church, although this kingdom is uh, in heaven. Its final end is uh, heavenly. So there is a natural headship of Christ, which corresponds to his supernatural headship over the church. So Christ is the the, the beginning of everything, Christ is the end of everything, the final cause, the very goal towards which everything is, uh, is uh, now going. But also Christ has been made the head of the church, which means he's the, the mystical body, the church, has uh, her consistence in Christ. Christ is the head. So, this means that Christ is the head of all creation and the head of the church. He owns a primacy over the church as well as over creation. 
creation, natural sphere, church, supernatural sphere. In Christ, they come to be together. Without any confusion, of course, there is always a distinction between the natural level and the supernatural level, but no opposition. Because there is one head, Christ. So, the church is the body of Christ, and Christ is the head of her, the head of the church. He, therefore, according to Colossians 1.18, is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may hold the primacy. Colossians 1.18, that's beautiful. This is Christ's kinship, his primacy over all things. The beginning, the firstborn of all creation, so that in all things, all things, nothing is uh, left out. All things, he may hold the primacy. This specifies even better the universality of Jesus' kinship. Now, in order to understand better that Jesus is a king, that his kinship is universal, we have to speak about his kingdom. Because if there is a king, this king has a kingdom. And if, a, if to be a king means to have the power to govern a people or a nation, Christ is fully a king because he has the full jurisdiction, we said, on all creation and on the supernatural body of his, the church. So Christ is fully a king who has indeed this uh, kingdom. We have now to discover what this kingdom is about. What kind of kingdom is this? Can it be equal to an existing kingdom? The united kingdom. Is it the same thing? <laughs> no. Or is it of a different nature? A different nature. But we have to understand the nature. So, let us discover the coordinates to understand this kingdom. And these uh, coordinates are given to us by the prophet Daniel. We quoted this morning. And his prophecy about the Son of Man, who has an eternal power. And also, from the Son of Man, of Daniel, we come to Jesus preaching about the kingdom of God. So we have to bind up the Son of Man and Jesus' reference to the kingdom of God according to Mark 1.15, or the kingdom of heaven, same thing, but according to Matthew. We already said that Matthew is a Jew. He is speaking to the Jews. That's why his gospel is for the Jews. And he avoids, as the Jews do, to, to call God's by name, God by name. So that's why we have in his gospel the expression kingdom of heaven. But it is the same, same meaning. That is a realm of salvation, the kingdom of God. Let us say it now quickly. And we try to expand our thoughts on it. The realm of salvation in which God is the Lord. There is a sovereignty of God exercised in this kingdom. Or better to say, the kingdom is God who is king, who rules over us. Jesus, by announcing this kingdom also described it with the image of a banquet, the kingdom of God, or as a nuptial feast, uh, especially Matthew 22, 1, in relation to the very completion of this uh, uh, nuptial feast, which 
has its final beginning in the institution of the Holy Eucharist. The Holy Eucharist is the banquet, is a spousal banquet, spousal feast, because Jesus is given himself as a nourishment, his body and blood, in order to be with him, to be made partakers of him. So, this is the very completion of the kingdom of God, the institution of the Holy Eucharist. But now let's go gradually on. Let's start with this. The preaching of the kingdom by Jesus. In this preaching, we find something truly significant. Our Lord says that this kingdom is a reality already present. Jesus is not just speaking about the coming of the kingdom, although we have some references to the coming of the kingdom, but Jesus preaches about the kingdom as something already here, present in his preaching, but more specifically in his person. Our Lord, in fact, says the kingdom is in your midst. Luke 17:21. And this in your midst can also be translated within you, but not only as within you. We have to be careful. The, the original Greek saying that the kingdom is in your midst or within you can be translated in both ways. It is important not to reduce the kingdom to a, a, an interior fact, because we can easily end up in saying that the kingdom of God is something spiritual, and the consequence is that your faith is private. Your faith is hidden in your soul. You can believe whatever you want as long as you believe it privately. You do not affect my own existence. This is the way of thinking nowadays. You can do whatever you want, but in your house, if you want to come into the public sphere of life in politics, you have to give it up. You are not allowed to speak about your faith, because this is putting other people off. But the very beginning of this mentality is in a Protestant translation of the kingdom of heaven, as something only interior. The kingdom is within you, and the very root, if we want to delve a little bit down, the very root of this Protestant translation is also one of the fathers of the church origin, who in interpreting the Our Father, Thy kingdom come, was saying that this kingdom comes within ourselves, in our souls. Making reference more uh, exclusively to a kingdom which is not visible, but spiritual. The translation of the kingdom is in your maids or in, within you has to be in both ways. <clears throat> the kingdom is within you as long as you live in grace and you welcome my message. That is the beginning of the kingdom. But this kingdom expands, so to speak, from you and through you to other people around you. The kingdom has the power to come out and to be seen, to be visible by other people. So the kingdom is also in your midst. Why? Because Jesus is this kingdom. Jesus is bringing about God's sovereignty. And this sovereignty is visible. It's not only hidden in Jesus' heart, right? So it's important that we uh, are very careful, otherwise historical consequence, consequences are very dangerous. <coughs> so, the kingdom is in your midst. 
This means that the definitive salvation from sin is already present and working among us, though it is still open to a future accomplishment. The kingdom is here, though its completion is beyond time in heaven. This is another thing always to look at carefully, to keep together the fact that the kingdom is here, but uh, its completion is not here in this time, is uh, above. Its completion is into eternity. Yes, we have to avoid, because if we reduce the kingdom to a temporal one, the risk is of becoming, uh, just to transform this world into the manifestation of God's kingdom. And this is one of the several ideologies who, which already appeared. Marxism is, in fact, one of these millenarism, this uh, kingdom of thousand years where happiness is over the earth and uh, freedom from war, freedom from revolution, so on. This is a heresy whose name is millenarism, which has taken throughout the centuries several forms. But basically, it is always the same way to understand the kingdom as exclusively temporal. Not only hidden now, but temporal, reduced to this sphere. No, the kingdom is present, is historical, <coughs> but it is not temporal. It is uh, eternal, because Christ is eternal. Right? So we can never have on earth the accomplishment of God's kingdom. Our homeland is in heaven. So, the kingdom is already present, but its fulfillment is in heaven. This is why Jesus invites us to be vigilant and ready to welcome it when it comes. The kingdom of Christ is present and working now waiting for its final completion in God outside the time, so that it can never be mixed up with a political intermundane realm, something belonging to this world, a political kingdom. No. This kingdom of God is the way God reigns. The kingdom is not a territory. We normally have always the idea of uh, marking out a kingdom. Of course, the queen, in order to govern, has to know the boundaries of her realm, right? And so we mark out the territory. But <laughs> the kingdom of Christ is not the territory. The kingdom of Christ is the way he is present, reigning as our saviour. Our God, the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of heaven is Christ reigning among us, right? The kingdom of heaven is Christ's act of reigning among us. Christ brought God's sovereignty among us. Uh, according to a very good biblical scholar, Ignace de la Pottery, we can say, in order to avoid all possible misunderstandings of this kingdom, and this is a very good synthesis of what the majority of good biblical scholars say about this, we can say that through all his actions, Jesus manifests his conscience, his awareness, to be the King Messiah, to be the one who brings about God's sovereignty itself. This is the kingdom of God. The consciousness of Christ to be the one who brings about God's majesty. 
You understand? And uh, what about the expression, the kingdom of God is within you or among you? How should we take it? This uh, expression of Jesus is unanimously understood by scholars, not quite as an interior spiritual presence of the kingdom, although there is also an interior aspect of it, but rather as the fact that the kingdom of God began with Israel in the Old Testament and continues by the activity and the ministry of Christ. The kingdom is visible in the ministry of Christ. In fact, this kingdom is visible in Jesus' ministry, in the signs he accomplishes in order to manifest He's uh, being the Messiah of God. This is the way John the Baptist was able to acknowledge him, or better, to make his disciples aware of Jesus' presence as the Messiah. So the kingdom is manifested through Jesus' actions, Jesus' teachings, Jesus' miracles and signs. So, my dear brethren, we have to keep together this. The kingdom of Christ is visible and historical. It's not only spiritual and invisible, but at the same time is transcendent and eternal. Are you with me? It's important to keep these two qualities together. The kingdom of God is visible, is here in this world, not only my soul, but among us, right? But uh, it can never be reduced to something historical, to a historical manifestation of God's kingdom. It is always projected towards eternity. It can never be identified with a historical, political power. The, the, now we come to some, some definitions or in order to understand better what I mean, okay? Don't be discouraged. In the encyclical letter of, by, written by Pius XI, Quas Primas, by which the Pope instituted, what? Were you attentive this morning? Christ the King, the Feast of Christ the King. In this encyclical letter, which is very important, it's a doctrinal synthesis of this kinship of Christ, the Pope says that the kingdom of Christ has to be understood principally as spiritual. It is a spiritual kingdom. It does not belong to the world. You remember Jesus was to Pilate, my kingdom, is not of this world, yes? But it does not mean that his kingdom is not ruling over this world. It's two different, there are two different aspects. My, the nature of my kingdom is not of this world, though it is God's dominion over the world. It is principally spiritual, but also universal and social. It embraces society, the whole society, all people of goodwill. It is present and operating in history, politics, science, and in all temporal and social affairs. It has to cover everything, to rule over all these aspects of life. There is not an economy which is against faith. Or better, in this way, we understand that the economy has never to drift away from the teaching of Christ, from the, the true social teaching of the Church. There is no politics which can uh, get rid of Christ and the message of Christ. This means that politics has to match Jesus' teaching 
and the magisterium, the social magisterium of the church. And there is a social magisterium of the church giving some guidelines to, the, to politics, to economy, to social affairs. So the kinship of Christ is very significant and has very uh, practical consequences in order to live as Christians. All is laid under Christ's fate so that he holds a primacy over all things. Christ's kinship, again, moreover, can also be distinguished as natural right because Jesus is God and the Creator, God is a king for this natural right. He has a natural right because he's God. He's king by nature and also he's king by acquired right. What does it mean? Because he's true man and because of his redemption. His outpouring of his blood in order to rescue us. With that redemption, Christ has a right over us. The right to rule over us because we belong to him. Either you acknowledge it or you reject it, Christ still holds this right of all men. So the question about another person of another faith is not does not matter because Christ rules over all people people who have already recognized him and people who have not recognized him yet but can be Christians this is the great news about Christianity every man can be a Christian it's not about being born in that religion. It's not about having that tradition in my family. It's not about being of that geographical area in order to have that religion. It's about conforming your life to Jesus. That's why Christianity is universal, as Jesus is universal. No boundary anymore. So this acquired right speaks of Jesus through redemption and the fact that he has a power over all mankind. Let us now try to make everything, bring everything together, okay? To sum up all things in Christ. <laughs> From the unity of cosmic, universal, natural, and ecclesial headship in Christ derives that his kinship is both spiritual and social. And this kingdom, spiritual and social, these two aspects are both at the same time universal. So the kingdom of Christ is spiritual and social. That is invisible and visible. And this invisibility and visibility are both universal, covering everything. This uh, kinship begins with the creation and terminates, so to speak, with the redemption, has in, in the redemption its accomplishment. And this uh, concept perfectly matches the mystery of the incarnate word, true God and true man, the unity of the divine and human nature in the only person of the word. As Christ is one, person, a divine person, in two natures, divine and human nature, so it's, uh, his kinship is natural, human, creation, supernatural, redemption, the church. 
This kinship can be participated to all men. Every man and woman can be partakers of this kinship in virtue of a correct relation between nature and grace. As nature finds, look at this now, this is a practical consequence. As nature finds its free and perfect fulfillment in grace, grace is the fulfillment of nature, right? The perfection of, of nature. So politics, economy, science, and all other human disciplines, and the society itself find their strong foundation and fulfillment in God and in his salvific power of love, the sovereignty of Christ. So we have to hold always this very perfect relationship between nature and grace. Yes? Grace is not due to nature. Grace is a gift. Grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it, lifts lift it, uh, it up to a supernatural level. So, the grace of Christ, the kingdom of heaven, which is supernatural, elevates to a supernatural status, the creation and all people of goodwill, who by grace, given freely, by baptism, become partakers of this grace and become royal members of this kingdom. So again, no position, never, between economy, politics, and faith, and Christ. But there is no position only if you compare economy with Christ. <laughs> you can't compare. Yes. Everything is made in Christ. But only if you have Christ as the reference model, you can compare, you can bring these uh, natural disciplines to their fulfillment. And only in Christ there is no position between faith and science, for example. Because we believe that Christ is the Logos, the reason, the reason that made everything. Nothing is, has been left out of this infinite reason. So Christ is the head of all men, whether because they already are Christians or because they can become such. So we can clearly summarize the universal extension of Christ's kinship with the words of Pope Leo XIII, quoted by Pius XI in his Quas Primus, number 18. Leo XIII says thus, Christ's empire includes not only Catholic nations, not only baptized persons who though of right belonging to the church, have been led astray by error or have been cut off from her by schism, but also all those who are outside the Christian faith, so that truly the whole of mankind is subject to the power of Jesus Christ. You understand that? but it might easily be considered an old teaching of the Church, because it was written in 1899, in the letter, encyclical letter, Annum Sacrum, the sacred year. You might easily say, but Father, this is an old-fashioned teaching. We have had Vatican II, which reformed everything, and the Vatican II taught about the autonomy of temporal goods. Can we put one teaching against the other? No. The rule is to read the new teaching in the light of the old teaching. And we still hold 
that Christ is the king of all those baptized people and also the king of those who have no faith, no Christian faith yet. Yes, Christ is not only the king of those who go to church. Right? Christ is the king of every man. And why every man has the power to come under Christ's kinship? Because of that nature of his open to grace. And when the will is open to grace and grace comes to fulfill that desire, there is a conversion. But this conversion is for everyone. It's not a torture, it's not a violence, it's a message, it's a, a way to evangelize and to make possible this encounter between grace and nature, will and grace. When this encounter happens, there is a conversion. There is the fulfillment, so to speak, of Christ's kinship. So, what can we draw from all this? What's the practical consequence? I would say, first of all, the very practical and important consequence is that we do not live a life which is Christian when we go to church and social when we finish, when we come out uh, the church and then we engage with social things. There is no split. If we live in this split, actually we don't believe in Christ. We are not practicing the faith. Because we think that basically grace has nothing to do with nature. There is a split between nature and grace. So in order to live properly this kinship of Christ and to remain under Jesus' sovereignty, to make him a king of our lives, our families, is to live always in this unity of faith and reason, faith and life. Another very practical consequence is that we have to stop being relativists. <laughs> we have to stop being relativists. Relativists. The accent on the first E. Relativists. Okay. <laughs> what does it mean? That we, this means that we have not to be, in order to be good people, inclusive. Everyone is welcome, but in the sense that everyone is saved, whatever his, her religion. This is relativism, where there is no truth. All truths are fine, because in the end there is no truth, but everyone is able to keep, to stick to his own truth. You can see God in a way, Another person can see another face of God because eventually God has as many faces as the religions in the world. Is this acceptable? How many faces God has got? Only one. Otherwise, how can we see God? Would you say that's how we, we misinterpret the, the Bible when it says there are many rooms in my house? Um, and I think people think that means that yes. many are accepted. Like yes, the rooms are not about, there are as many rooms as the religions in the world. No, <laughs> the rooms speak about, there, are, there is a lot of space in my house. There is space for everyone. So everyone is welcomed. Though he goes through the door, yes? In order to come into a house, you go through the door, isn't it? The door is who? I'm the door, Christ. You can't go into the house by the roof. Yes? You have to go into the flock ship, into the, in, in the, where the, the ship are, by going through the gate. If you go through another way, you are a burglar. So the door is Christ. There are many rooms. 
has been read by St. Teresa of Avila also in a spiritual way. There are many levels of spiritual life. Spiritual life is a growth. You have the first room, you have the second room, you have nine rooms. At the very center of the house, there is the main lounge with the throne of Christ. Christ is at the very center. And all these rooms lead to the very center of the house. So it is not about justifying relativism. It's about saying that everyone is welcome, but through the door, through Christ. So would relativism be synonymous with liberalism? Yes. yes. Liberalism, especially in England, by St. John Harry Newman, has been understood, has been taken as modernism. Modernism is a current of thought which began in the 20th, 19th, uh, 20th century. And uh, this says, it's a theological current of the thought. This says that the dogmas are not permanent. The formulae of the dogmas can develop. Because in the end, they do not express the faith revealed, but the faith is changing according to time and the spirit of the person who understands it. So yesterday we understood transubstantiation in a way. Today, because of the time, because of the world that uh, changed, we can understand it in a, a new fashion, new way. The, the very root is relativism. But uh, liberalism is the expression of this uh, modernism to say that the faith is subject to the time. In other words, time is more important than God. And this is the way people say, but now we are living in 2020. This kind of Pope was living in 1899. <laughs> we have to leave that magisterium behind. Let's go everyone with Pope Francis. And what about the predecessors? We cannot have Pope Francis without Leo XIII, right? And all other popes since St. Peter. So another practical consequence is to ban relativism. And now there is a spiritual consequence for us. What's the best way to live out this kinship of Christ in our lives? How can we conform our lives to this kinship of our Lord. What's the way spiritually to welcome it? Of course, by becoming members of this kingdom, by baptism. But there is also another way to become even more aware and to please Jesus and to profess this uh, willingness to become intentional uh, kings of this kingdom. Through Our Lady, going into the heart of Jesus, consecrating yourself to the heart of our Lord. Spiritually speaking, the consecration to the sacred heart echoes the kinship of Christ. The first consecration to the heart of Jesus was made by this very old Pope for the first time in 1900 by Leo XIII. The consecration of humankind to the, to the sacred heart of our Lord. Why? To respond to this uh, appeal of some uh, St. Margaret Mary Alacoque, yes, the revelation of the sacred heart, and also to bring all mankind to the, to the heart of Jesus. Following up to this consecration, we come to 1925, when Pius XI instituted the Feast of Christ the King. The liturgical feast echoing that devotion to the sacred heart of Jesus. And the Pope was ordering to renew on that day the consecration to the sacred heart made by, for the first time, by Pope Leo XIII. The two things are very much attached. Uh, sacred heart, Christ the King. The way to profess this kinship of Christ is to be to belong to Jesus, to come into the sigh, into his pierced heart, and to have in his heart our own abode permanently.
Finally, another spiritual consequence, but very much linked to this, to this uh, four last one. To become kings, to be kings as we are, is to participate in this kingship of Christ. And we said also that to be kings means to be servants, to minister to Christ and to others, right? We become servants because Christ became the servant and he was exalted as the king of kings. So, in order to be kings and queens, we should say, to be more inclusive, <laughs> but you understand also, <laughs> this is another, another problem of today's society. I have to be inclusive, otherwise I might be... Yes. <laughs> I am not. I talk to everyone. <laughs> uh, anyway. Jokes apart. Uh, in order to be partakers of this kinship, we have to become servants. <coughs> the very first moment when Our Lady participated in this kingdom of Jesus is when? At the Annunciation. When she said, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be done unto me according to thy word. Behold the handmaid of the Lord. She proclaimed herself the servant. So she was already taking part, actually, in this kingdom, developing from that moment to the very final moment, which is the, the moment of Calvary, when Our Lady is also present. So to be kings means to be servants. Who is the best model of these servants? Our Lady. We have to go to the Sacred Heart through Mary, always through the heart of Mary. To consecrate ourselves to the Sacred Heart means also to consecrate ourselves to the heart of Mary, to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. So, in Our Lady's Immaculate Heart, we become true kings. We become partakers of this kinship of Christ, and this kinship, which is visible and social, can expand from us, through us, to all other people, so that we can reach out to many other people living around us. Um, and uh, <clears throat> going to all nations, as Jesus says to his apostles. Amen. <laughs>